This is the Alabama Law Enforcement Alliance for Peer Support podcast. Our goal in this podcast is to provide you with information, whether you are a law enforcement officer or first responder, to help you deal with your everyday stressors. All right, welcome to today's podcast. We have with us Dr. Tim Falk, who's the clinical director of Al Leaps, and also Dr. David Klinger, who is the author of End of the Kill Zone. David, very excited you're with us today. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. David is going to be our speaker at our sixth annual Al Leaps Conference, which we have at Harvest Church on 2727 Fortner Street. And as this podcast goes out, we want to make sure that all of our listeners understand this is both an invitation and an educational opportunity. And uh, we get the privilege of interviewing Dr. Klinger today. And so, Tim, why don't you take us into this interview? I'll be glad to. Keith, thank you. Um, I I was, uh, I guess, about a year and a half ago uh, at one of our conferences, uh, one of our peer support conferences, trainings, peer support training, I'm sorry. Uh, I was looking through some books, and and I came across Into the Kill Zone by David Klinger, a cop's eye view of deadly force. And I said, you know, I like that guy. (laughs) And I read it, and I said, uh, I've got to get up with uh, Dr. Klinger and see if we can't get him here. David presently is a professor of criminology and criminal justice at the University of Missouri in St. Louis and a senior fellow at the Police Foundation in Washington, D.C. And, uh, David, we're extremely honored to have you here. Uh, And uh, I know you've got a bunch of other credentials that are out here. But what I'd kind of like for you to do today in this first section for us is kind of tell us a little bit about you, uh, what brought uh, Into the Kill Zone into existence. And, uh, again, we're looking forward to seeing you in February, uh, February the 7th, as well as the 6th when you uh, get here and meet uh, for our fellowship time. And so without any further ado, uh, brother, if you would kind of take us through into the kill zone. Sure. Um, let me just make one correction addendum to what the introductory material indicated. So the National Police Foundation has changed its name this year to the National Policing Institute. So that's something that people should be aware of. I don't want anyone to be confused about that. And the second thing is I'm now on the board of directors with the National Policing Institute, uh, as well as my academic um, title at the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Um, In terms of how I came to write this book, how the book came about, um, it's kind of interesting at a bunch of different levels for me as an academic pinhead. And that is that I've always been interested in the use of deadly force by police officers for whatever reason. And uh, in fact, when I was an undergraduate student at Seattle Pacific University, um, I wrote a couple of papers for a couple of different classes about uh, police use of deadly force in Seattle. One was a policy analysis because uh, the SPD had recently undertaken some moves to change their policy. And then another one was a, a, a study of the geographic distribution of police shootings in Seattle. And so I was always interested in a variety of things about the use of deadly force. What are the rules? What are the places and times that officers get involved in shootings and whatnot? And uh, then I became a police officer myself and uh, worked for the Los Angeles Police Department. And prior to um, getting involved in um, law enforcement as an officer, I uh, prepared myself uh, by going to something called the Voice of Calvary, which is a uh, church in uh, Jackson and Mendenhall, Mississippi. And they have some other places as well, but that's really where it started out. 
And one of the things I was really interested in was racial reconciliation and particularly the role that the Christian church could play in racial reconciliation because I felt a calling to go to South Central Los Angeles to combat uh, gang warfare, which was running rampant in the 1970s. And in fact, uh, a kid that I knew from a Bible conference had, uh, uh, he was in Los Angeles, I was down in San Diego, and we met at a uh, at this uh, Bible camp one summer. And uh, it turned out that unfortunately, he decided to uh, migrate back into a gang that he had some affiliation with, and he was killed in the drive-by when I was off at college. And I sort of took that as the um ultimate indicator that i need to go to los angeles as a police officer as someone who is going to seek reconciliation and uh so i finished up my degree at seattle pacific after spending some time on the ground at the voice of calvary in uh, jackson and mendenhall and then um got hired on by the lapd after a few months they had a hiring freeze and whatnot completed my academy training and fortunately I finished high enough up high enough up in the graduation hierarchy of my class that I had my pick of what division I wanted to go to and so I chose 77th Street division which is the historically rough area of South Central Los Angeles uh, the area where the Watts riots in 1965 had broken out and then spinning forward to 92 where the Rodney King riots broke out at any rate so I you know, if, if you're going to go, go do something, you may as well do something big that old, you know, saying go big or go home. <laughs> and uh, so I, I went to be a police officer in Los Angeles with this vision and quickly learned that the frame of reference that I had about dealing with violence and dealing with people who use violence in their everyday life um is excuse me was was quite pollyannish that unfortunately in our fallen uh state we have people that are so far beyond the pale that there's times and places where reason and logic and compassion do not work and sometimes we have to get very physical with people and for me the biggest lesson was on July 25th of 1981. I'd been on the streets about four months and I was working with a guy named Dennis Acevedo that night and uh, cut to the chase. Some guy decided that he wanted to kill Dennis. I was on one side of the street. Dennis was on the other. We were at the scene of a barricaded gunman and I was keeping my eye on the house as Dennis ran across the street to try to get this one citizen out of the way. We didn't know who he was at the time. At any rate, uh, this guy uh, had uh, a bad disposition, shall we say, and he pulled a butcher's knife out of a uh, gym bag that he had over one of his shoulders, stabbed Dennis in the chest, and then chased him down the sidewalk as Dennis was backpedaling to try to get away from the knife blows as I'm running across the street. And uh, by the time I get there, Dennis is on his back. The suspect is on top of him. He's trying to drive the butcher's knife through Dennis's throat. I reached in, tried to control the knife, was not able to. Dennis said, shoot him. And so from probably, oh, maybe two, three feet away, the barrel of my gun would have been no more than two feet away. Um, pulled, you know, pulled the trigger, put one round into the suspect's left side underneath his armpit. And it traversed basically his entire torso and he ended up dying. And so that was a shock to the system. And uh, a lot of struggle, a lot of turmoil, in my young life because I went into police work with a vision of being a peacemaker 
And even though I had thought long and hard about this issue of taking a human life, um, when it when it came, it came very early, and um, I struggled with it for for quite some time. And one of the things that I struggled with was that there wasn't a real good understanding about who police officers are, why they pull the trigger, what happens to officers. This is once again, this is early 1980s. We had heard of the term post-shooting trauma. Uh, that's something that uh, the psychologists had started to spool up, uh, but there weren't real good psychological services uh, around the country. And there was essentially no sound academic research, save a couple or three studies, uh, one out of Salt Lake City, um, a couple of other ones. And uh, so I continued on with LAPD for a little while. And after a couple of years, I just said, you know, this isn't for me. Uh, and I had to figure out, was it Los Angeles or was it policing? That was the, the thing that uh, was caught in my craw. And the only way you can do that is be a cop somewhere else. So I went back to Seattle, where I had gone to college, lived with a couple of my college buddies, and uh, worked for the Redmond Police Department for about 15 months and said, you know, it's policing. Um, this is not what I want to do for the rest of my adult career life. I want to do something else. And I had always had this sort of crazy notion in the back of my mind that uh, I'll work 20 years in L.A. Um, after 10 years, I'll, you know, will have promoted maybe lieutenant or something, and then I'll go back to school, get my uh, Ph.D. It was going to be in history uh, from UCLA. And when I retired as a young 42, 43-year-old man, then I'd teach college after that. And I said, you know, after three and a half years of being a cop, I'm going to short circuit that and just go, walk, go back to grad school. So I chose American University as uh, where I wanted to go for my master's degree because there was a guy named Jim Fife who was a uh, lieutenant with the uh, New York City Police Department who basically, those of us that, that study the use of deadly force, he's sort of the godfather or grandfather of police use of deadly force research. He wrote his dissertation on uh, officer-involved shootings in New York City, looking between 72 and 75. I don't want to get too deep into the weeds, but he was a um, an outstanding mentor for me, someone who understood what policing was and really understood what research was. So I went to study under Jim, did some work with him, and then moved on to the University of Washington, back to Seattle, and got my PhD and did a bunch of stuff for several years, got tenure and all that, writing academic articles about a variety of things. And then I'm looking around after I've got tenure, and lo and behold, there still wasn't really good research on police use of deadly force from the perspective of the officers. Who are the men and women that pull the trigger? What happens in those moments where they have to make these rough decisions? And how does it affect them afterwards? And then also what I think is the great untold story of American law enforcement, and that is those situations where American police officers have lawful warrant to shoot people, but they don't. Um, and so through a combination of uh, a bunch of things, I got some funding from the U.S. Department of Justice to interview police officers to try to get, uh, get some data on these points. Who are these men and women? Why did they become cops? What were they trained in? How was their training uh, what was their training experience and how did it shape their, their thinking? And then situations where they could have shot but didn't, then situations where they shot, and then how did it affect them? And so that basically sets up the five chapters of Into the Kill Zone. Who are these men and women before they came police officers? What did they think about officer-involved shootings? How are they trained on officer-involved shootings, both in the academy and on the street? 
then the third chapter, which I think is, once again, the great untold story, case after case after case after case of officers who could have shot but didn't. Fourth chapter, the shootings, and then the fifth, how did it affect them? So I structured my interviews around that and then wrote the book around that. And so I have three audiences uh, in mind every time I thought about this book from the time I first was plotting it until today. And the three audiences are, number one, the general public. The general public doesn't have a clue about really anything about what goes on in policing, what goes on in the minds of officers, what their goals are when they get hired, what they think about it before they come on the job, what the training is, all that good stuff. Um, And so I want to present information about how police officers are formed and how their experiences on the street shape them, why they don't shoot when they don't shoot, why they shoot when they do shoot and how it affects them. And um, I'm an academic pinhead. And I could have written a book in a bunch of academies, but what I did is I chose to use a narrative historical framework. So what the book is, is it's just narratives, it's stories, it's sections of interviews with. And so the vast majority of the book is other officers telling their stories in various ways. It opens with my shooting and then goes into how the book is framed and then walks the reader through each of the five chapters. So the stories the officers tell are um, stitched together with information that I put in there to link up the stories with themes, so on and so forth, themes that were discovered through the research. So the first audience is the general public, and I wanted the officers' voices to be what was informing the general public, not my voice, not my researcher's voice. The second audience is police officers, and thank God that this is the majority of police officers who've never been involved in a shooting, who never shot anybody. Uh, One of the things that uh, most police officers have pondered at some point is, what will I do if I'm confronted with a situation where I need to put bullets downrange, and how is it going to affect me? Well, if you're a police officer in a big police department where shootings occur on a regular basis, you might run into some officers and you might have a chance to talk. Maybe at some training you would have uh, heard from uh, an officer who was involved in a shooting during your academy training or in-service training. Um, But for officers that work for smaller departments, the odds are quite long that they're going to really know somebody who was involved in a shooting. Yeah, they might have had a chance to talk to someone about shootings in a training setting, um, but not the the one-on-one stuff. And so what I wanted is for my book to be something that officers who have never been involved in the shooting, can look and go, huh, this is what these officers that this guy Klinger spoke with went through. This is how they experienced stuff. And then the third audience is the shooters, the cops who have been involved in shootings. Um, One of the things that I learned through my own experience and then interviewing all these officers and then also having literally dozens of friends who've been involved in shootings over the years, because I kept one foot in law enforcement, even though I went on to be an academic. I've done training. I was on the uh, training advisory committee, for example, of the Texas Tactical Police Officers Association. That's the SWAT cops out in Texas. And so, you know, I've I've talked with lots and lots of officers um, outside of the research about research for this book about officer involved shootings. And so one of the things I've, I've learned through that is that everybody's story is unique. 
But at the same time, there's some golden threads that tie most of the stories, most of what officers experience together in that we'll just talk about the range of reactions. For some officers, unfortunately, as you all know, um, the, dis the despair that can attend from, the, from involvement in a shooting, from killing someone, can lead to suicidal ideation. And so I've had officers, two of them, who said, I thought about sticking a gun in my mouth, to officers who said, it was the most exhilarating thing in my life that I've ever experienced. Not that I killed somebody, but that someone was trying to kill me and I prevailed. And I did what I was trained to do, and I'm alive. And that feeling of elation of I could have died, but I'm alive. So what my book does for officers who've been involved in shootings is lets the, lets the officers know at both ends of the spectrum and everything in between, what you've experienced is not unique to you in the large sense. It's unique to you because of all the things that were stitched together in your shooting, but other officers have gone through what you've gone through at least in a, in, in a course fashion. And so that's the book. Um, that's why it was written. And uh, I'm looking forward to coming down to uh, Dothan in, I guess, about two months. And well, I guess about maybe less than a month from when this broadcast is given and uh, talking with folks in more fine-grained detail about uh, the information in the book and some other stuff that I've learned from research that I've conducted about officer-involved shootings. Wow. Dr. Klinger, this has been amazing. Uh, Tim, you've done a really good job at picking the right person to come in for our conference. I've been a part of these conferences now for five years, Dr. Klinger, and I know that this is not only relevant, but it's going to be extremely helpful for the officers and their families who are going to be attending. And just uh, for our listeners, once again, this conference is coming up Monday, February 6th. And it, that actually is a time where we have a meet and greet that evening. And the church here where we meet actually puts on a meal for the families uh, of both the officers and their, their spouses. And then on Tuesday, we have our conference, which starts at 830 that morning. We want to encourage our listeners to go to our website. And you can register at www.harvestdothan.com forward slash leaps. That's harvestdothan.com forward slash leaps. We'd love for you to go ahead and register so we can be preparing. We're looking forward to you being here. And uh, Tim, that, that was just a, a great interview. We got a lot of information in a short period of time about really was. his book and his experience. Uh, you know, I, I always tell these guys, <clears throat> sometimes when I pick folks, they always scratch their head and say, you sure? And everything you hit on, David, is, is exactly what we talk about in peer support. Uh, we spend 32 hours in our peer support program, and uh, we have eight hours of officer-involved shooting training, and it's exactly what you talked about. And I can't wait till we get to the next segment here to really kind of delve into more of that. Uh, so, again, I appreciate you. Thank you so much. Look forward to the next segment, and uh, we'll see you in February. Very, very good. Looking forward to it. Thank you for listening. For more information and resources, visit our website, alleaps.org. If you have any questions or want to suggest a topic for a future episode, email us at alleapspodcast at gmail.com. That's A-L-L-E-A-P-S podcast at gmail.com. The Alleaps Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, and Facebook.